continue to go through the book of Mark and here, and I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm listening to music, as I'm listening to a song, especially for the first time, there will be a particular line in the song, some part of the lyrics that will just pop out at me and grab my attention and move me on some level. And today I want to go out um, through two scriptures that I was reading through the book of Mark in chapters 2 and 3, and when I read these stories, they just popped out at me. I thought, I've got to study these. I've got to preach about these. And so we're going to look at those scriptures today, and there are, um, it's a message entitled, New Wineskin and Demons Preaching. You betcha, okay? So let's look at New Wineskins first. This is out of Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, going without food. Some people came and asked Jesus, hey, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? This was an important tradition that they followed. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine, whoopsie-daisy, can we go back? And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine would burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. That's probably really self-explanatory, isn't it, for you? You probably know, oh, wow, that scripture blesses me so much, I know exactly what he's talking about, right? Probably not, all right? This is a famous passage of Scripture, actually, and many people have preached on it. You've probably heard it taught on before, but I hope to do it in a little bit of a new twist, a new way today, because this verse is so 2020 to me. As you read through the book of Mark, you realize right away Jesus was always messing with the status quo. He was always breaking rules and breaking with traditions, and when he did it, it freaked people out. It freaked people out. And it's in this context of people being completely freaked out because he didn't fast like the other spiritual leaders did at the time that he tells them, hey, when you've got new wine, you've got to put it into new wine skins. That means nothing to most of us here because most of us in this room have never even seen a wineskin. We've seen a Boda bag. Some of you have seen quite a few of those, but you have not seen a wineskin. We drink our liquid from stainless steel flasks or from titanium water bottles. We shudder at the idea of drinking any kind of liquid from a skin, don't we? That just sounds straight up nasty to us. But back in this day, the people would have understood, hey, when somebody makes a new batch of wine, they put it in new wine skins because those are flexible and during the fermentation process, those skins won't burst. Where if you put the new wine into old wine skins, the rigidity of those old wine skins would crack and burst during the fermentation process. And then you wouldn't have wine, you'd have a mess. Jesus offers himself to us and he offers himself and a brand new way of living life and looking at the world. He is the spiritual equivalent of new wine. And in order to contain his presence and the life he has for us, we have to be new wineskins. We got to be people who, who can be flexible, who can stretch, who can change, who can transform, who can embrace new ideas and new practices. And I want to show you a way that this fleshes out in our lives, one of just many of the ways, and it has to do with moving from one stage of development to another in your lifetime. 
If you want to study more about this, there's a guy named Ken Wilbur that wrote about it brilliantly in a book called A Brief History of Everything, which is a great title for a book, isn't it? Just a brief history of everything, all right? Let me show you these stages. They're egocentric, tribal-centric, and world-centric. There's actually another one, but those are the ones we're going to focus on today, and you'll see what they have to do with new wineskins in a minute. But let's start. Let me explain what egocentric is. This is the stage that every human being starts at okay? We are egocentric. In this stage, life is all about me. Many of you have children, and you know that, okay? The little angelic children in here that we always go, oh, they're so sweet, they're so wonderful, they're so loving. No, they're selfish, tiny little beings. That's what we are, and you were the same when you were younger. That's why many of you, your first word was me or mine, okay? That's what the egocentric stage is. It's all about me. But it's not all about selfishness and negativity. This is the stage where hopefully we develop a very healthy sense of self. We develop a sense of value and esteem. And our loved ones and our family, if you're in a, raised in a healthy family, help you develop a healthy self-worth and self-esteem. You remember the times probably or remember it with your kids. Like when your kids bring home artwork, right? And they bring home artwork and they show it to you. And what do you do? You don't critique it. No way. You look at it and go, oh my gosh, that's so creative. That's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's a masterpiece, okay? We have a budding Picasso in our midst. And you hang up that artwork on the refrigerator. And the kid feels so great about it. And then the kid goes to bed and you look at it and you're going, it looks like an ink block test. I don't even know what this is. Is this a pizza? Is it a butterfly? I don't know, okay? But you build them up no matter what. Or maybe when you were younger, you thought you were so strong and you're flexing your muscles and you come out and look how big my muscles are, mom and dad. And then you wrestle your uncle, arm wrestle your uncle, and he lets you win and you just feel like the incredible Hulk. When in reality, you're not strong at all. It's amazing that your spindly little legs can hold your torso up in the air even, and you struggled to hoist the half gallon of milk out of the refrigerator to pour it on your cereal, okay? You're not strong at all. Or maybe some of you remember this or remember it with your daughters. Your daughter comes out, and she's dressed herself for the first time. You remember this? And she comes out, and you go, oh my goodness, you look so great. You're so beautiful. You look so pretty, when in reality nothing matches. She looks like the love child between like a thrift store and a garage sale, okay? And yet you let her go to school that way because you love her and you're building up her self-esteem. That's what we do. This encouragement helps us develop a sense of value and worth and esteem, and it is devastating when it doesn't happen. There's a book, I don't necessarily recommend that you read it because it's too difficult, It's a short little book by an amazing author named Renee Alston, and she grew up in the most dysfunctional dumpster fire of a family I've ever heard of in my life. She suffered horrendous abuse that I'm not even going to mention today. I let somebody borrow it. I never let anybody borrow my books, but I let a person in our church borrow it because she really wanted to know about it. And her dad, who claimed to be a Christian, and I say claimed because his behavior doesn't back it up whatsoever, um, would abuse her in every way imaginable. And even some mornings, if it was cloudy outside, he would look at his little daughter and go, you know why the sun's not going to come out today? It's because it doesn't want to see your stinking ugly face. 
He would tell that, and that was one of his better moments. I'm not kidding you. And it devastated her because she didn't get this self-esteem developed. In fact, she went on to write, I ended up growing up wearing shame like a second skin. That's how she grew up. Somehow God broke through to her. I don't know how to this day. And she stumbled towards faith. That's the name of her book. So this stage is necessary, but as necessary as it is, it's not good to get stuck in this stage. You can easily identify people who get stuck in this stage. People who are stuck in the egocentric stage are ball hogs in sports. They're pulpit hogs in churches. They won't let anybody else ever preach. They think they are the only ones that can speak for God. They are ruthless ladder climbers in business, stepping all over other people on their way up the corporate ladder. They refuse to receive correction because they can't believe they're ever wrong, and they don't have the ability to serve and care for others whatsoever. They're absolute, complete narcissists. So to get stuck in this stage is to be an old wineskin. You're rigid. You're inflexible. You're not willing to move on past yourself. God doesn't want that for anybody. It makes a mess out of their lives. So he prods us to the next stage, which is tribal-centric. In the tribal-centric stage, and a lot of times this happens around middle school or high school for most people, you start to recognize there's actually other people in the world, and believe it or not, they matter, (laughs) okay? In this stage, we learn to share, we learn to hug, we learn to give, we learn to love. This is the stage of BFFs and family reunions and, and first dates and team sports, okay? It's when we see community in all its mess, but also in all of its glory and splendor. We start to be loved and accepted by the people around us, and we form a tribe of trusted people. And this tribe makes us feel safe in an oftentimes lonely and scary world. In fact, when you read the beginning of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, people didn't operate in our, our sense of culture and civilization. They were tribal in nature. And they formed these tribes for safety. Your tribe kept you safe from other tribes that might not like you and would try to kill you. And they also kept you safe from super scary animals. Okay, But to get stuck in this stage is most uncool, okay? People who get stuck in this stage experience so many negative things. People who are stuck in the tribal stage have this unhealthy sense of nationalism. Oh, God only loves and blesses my tribe, my country. Not the rest of the world, just my country. We're God's favorite. They also develop an unhealthy sense of church family. They think our church is the best. Our church is God's favorite. I know there are other churches but they're weird. They're missing it a little bit, okay? Our church is the only anointed church. It's the one God looks at and goes, you, finally, somebody got it right. You got it right. There is a church reader board sign, and we don't have one at our church because they're weird. (laughs) They're weird and cheesy because our church is better. No, I'm just teasing, okay? But this church reader board, it's not up anymore, thank God, okay? Because it said on the church reader board, it invited people to come to this church because the drive is worth the difference. I've never wanted to graffiti a church so bad in my whole life. I just wanted to graffiti that sign because what it's saying is, hey, that suck fest of a faith community you're involved in right now is no good. So 
go ahead, make the effort to drive across town and come to our church because our church is better. Our church is God's anointed. It's God's favorite gag, okay? Getting stuck in this stage also gives us things like racism and sexism and gangs and lots and lots of wars. Every war that was started through history was started by a person that was stuck in the tribal-centric place in their life. You can read your history books and see about it. The motto for people stuck in tribal-centricness it should be this, birds of a feather flock together and our feathers are better than everybody else's. So again, God wants us to transcend and move beyond just the tribal stage. Be thankful for the healthy parts, but move on to what's next. And what's next is world-centric. In this stage, we realize there are other people in other places in the world that are completely different than us and they're awesome. They're absolutely awesome. We are a part of something bigger than ourselves and more the merrier. That's kind of the motto there because when we become world-centric, we see firsthand how God loves the world, not just us. So we live out that famous verse in John 3:16, for God so loved the world. And something amazing happens in our faith when we become world-centric. We actually start to love God more. Because if I told you before, every person on the planet, every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every human being is made in the image of the divine. We carry around in us the image of Almighty God. And so when we gather together with other people all over the place from all different cultures and ways of life and, and ways of looking at the world, and we come together, we end up being like the tiles of a mosaic when we come together, and what we form when we're together is the very face of God. So to love more people is to end up seeing God more clearly. That's what happens to world-centric people. And think about this. I've been reading about physics stuff, Matt, again lately. I can't help myself. I'm not an expert on physics by far. I have to check most of my facts with Matt. But it's so amazing. I'm reading about the universe. And we tend to think of the universe as just Earth, the sun, and the moon, and maybe some stars that we can see. But the universe is ginormous. And it's expanding at a rapid rate. In fact, scientists believe it's expanding so much that in order to measure it in the future, they're going to need a new type of physics, a new type of math to even measure how fast the universe is expanding. Doesn't that frighten you a little? It's a little bit scary, okay? But this should tell us something. We worship and love and adore a big God, a really big God, a God who never stops creating, a God who is expanding creation even as I speak right now. And he's also a God who is inviting us to step into the flow of what he's currently doing in the creation around us. He's saying, hey, just as the universe is expanding and unfolding and getting bigger, I want you as a person to step into the flow of what I'm doing in the universe. And I want you to expand and grow and change and transform and, un and unfold. And by the way, this is why love always feels better than hate. Hate is always going against the flow of what God's doing in the world because hate isn't expansive and it isn't growing. Hate constricts. Hate shrinks down your life. You exclude other people and it be, your world becomes smaller. It becomes just about you. Whereas love is the opposite. Love steps into the flow of what God is doing. Love expands your social circles. It expands your heart. It grows you as a person. Love is stepping in the flow of what God's doing. So 
All this to say, it's important we don't get stuck in the earlier stages, but it's not going to be easy. It is difficult to make the step from stage to stage, especially the step from tribal-centric to world-centric. And let me tell you why. When you make that step, you'll start to talk about to other people about your beliefs and about other people you're meeting and other people you're embracing and the growth that's taking place. And the people that are stuck in the tribal-centric stage will get so mad at you. They will get so mad at you because you threaten their way of life. You threaten their thinking. It scares them to death. They'll accuse you of being a traitor and of betraying your tribe. How can you embrace all these other people when you have us? All you need is us. And they'll get so upset at you. It makes sense because you're introducing something new, a new way of thinking to them, and that's always scary for people. Look at the um, book of Luke. It mentions this story about the wineskins, but look at it adds a verse, and it says, And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, The old is better. Now, this isn't a commentary on old wine being better than new wine. Right now, we all like old wine better. The older it is, the more valuable it is. Back in this day, new wine was much more prevalent, and it was the thing that was sought after. But what this verse is saying, it's not really about wine, it's about life. And it's saying, hey, some people are going to resist new ideas and new ways of thinking and new people. They're not going to want to be world-centric. And why? Because they're used to their tribe. They're used to things being how they've always been. It's familiar. The new scares people. So, you've experienced new wine. You're experiencing more and more about Jesus and his life every day. That's great. Stay in that flow. Even if you make people mad, even if you frighten people, you've seen too much. You can't go backwards, and you wouldn't want to go backwards. Continue to grow and expand and unfold and change. Embrace the new and embrace new people. Accept the fact that God is way bigger than any one person or one tribe. And the book of Mark points the way for us so brilliantly in all of this because it shows us Jesus and he was world-centric. In just the first three chapters of the book of Mark, you read it. Just read it on your own. You'll see Jesus hangs out with everybody from every place. He hangs out with notorious sinners. He hangs out with rank-smelling fishermen. He hangs out with demon-possessed people. Who does that? He hangs out with sick people. That's even worse, okay, in my mind, in a germaphobe's mind. And according to chapter 3, he hangs out with people from Sidon. Again, that probably means nothing to you, but that's an important fact. Let me give you a little history here. Early on in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 9, we run into this guy named Noah, of Noah and the ark and the animals fame, okay? Noah, after the long boat trip, does something not very wise. He gets all drunk and naked and passes out in a cave. You can read it on your own. The Bible's full of the weird parts, too, okay? And so his kids come, and they see him in the cave, which is every kid's worst nightmare, isn't it? Hey, there's dad. Oh my gosh, my eyes. I can't unsee that, okay? So it's their worst nightmare. So they do what any kid would do. They cover him up. That's what they do. Because that's what you do with your passed out naked dad. You don't leave him out there for the world to see. You cover him up. And so they did that. But for reasons I don't have time to explain today, Noah was ticked at these people. 
He was ticked. So he cursed them. He cursed his own kids, not just them, but their offspring. So he puts this curse on them, which was a big deal back in this culture, including his own grandson, who is named Sidon. So Sidon grows up with this dark cloud of a patriarchal curse on his life. Not good. And later on you read that Sidon's descendants go to war with the Jews. And then later on there's a guy named King Solomon and he marries a few, not just one, a few Sidonian women and they convince him to worship false gods. So by the time of Jesus, Sidonians were considered false god-worshipping cursed enemies of God and enter Jesus. And in Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus is preaching to a large crowd of people and he's healing a bunch of people and they're from everywhere, including Sidon. Sidonians. He was hanging out with Sidonians. This is a shocker. It's not shocking you, but it should. This would be like me saying, hey, I hope you can come to church next week because I'm going to invite two of my friends, Hannibal Lecter and Voldemort. They're going to come to church with us. I mean, it's that shocking back in this culture. Jesus was constantly expanding his social circles, constantly, and he invites us to do the same because life isn't just about us or our particular tribe. It's about the whole world, and hear me really well here. And when I say the whole world, it even means life is about those people whom in the past we have labeled as villains and enemies of God. And my question for you today is an important one. Who are the Sidonians in your life? Who are the people that you have looked at for years and said, they have no place with God and no place with me? I challenge you, ask God that question and he'll show you who it is. And I also challenge you, take the step to embrace those people. Because when you embrace them, your life will get better and your God will get way bigger. Okay? Now let's move on to demons preaching. Let's do that. This is out of Mark chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. When they heard about all he was doing, talking about Jesus, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. There's the Sidonians again. Good for them, Sidonians. Because of the crowd, he was told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. This is an amazing section of Scripture. Check out verse 11 in particular. It says that when these demons, these dark spiritual beings, saw Jesus... They cried out, you are the son of God. That is just not something you expect. For demons to just burst into a spontaneous sermon, but that's what was happening here. It appears that these dark spirits were so impressed by Jesus, they couldn't help themselves. They just had to preach about it. That's remarkable, but I kind of understand the demons. Not because I, I like, like them or anything, but I understand the sentiment here. I am a basketball fan. I love going to basketball games, high school, college, pro, whatever. But when I go, some of the people sitting next to me are a little bit taken aback by me because, yes, I, I root for the home team. I root for the Ducks when I go watch them. But I also just love the game. 
So when the team the Ducks are playing against makes some sort of a good play, like a vicious dunk or a great, you know, no-look pass or something like that, I can't help myself. I go, wow, that was such a good shot, or that, what an amazing pass. And the people beside me give these sideways glances, like, how can you be rooting for the other team? Well, I'm not. I hope they lose miserably, okay? But... <laughs> I can't help but exclaim when a good play is made. I just have to say something about it. I have to acknowledge it. These demons were compelled by the goodness of Jesus to say something. But fortunately, here's the good news here. Fortunately, Jesus stops them. He silences them. Because just because they knew the truth doesn't mean their attitudes were good. And bad attitudes always ruin good sermons. Many of us have had the unfortunate Um, experience of listening to some anger-filled or insincere preacher rant on and on about the Bible. And he knows his stuff. He starts good, the content's good, but his bad attitude ruins it all. It's awful, okay? Jesus didn't want the demons to do that, so he silences them. But let's get back to Jesus here. Most of us in this room are familiar with Jesus. We've heard stories about him. We've read the Bible. We've maybe even prayed to him. We're familiar with him. And that's great until it's not. Until our familiarity blinds us to how incredible Jesus is. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about it. If you become too familiar with Jesus, if Jesus doesn't make your jaw drop every once in a while, your familiarity has blinded you to him. He is amazing. Look what the author, Anne Lamott, I love this. I love her, but look what she says about Jesus. He loves me so much, he keeps a photo of me in his wallet. If I were the only person on the planet, he still would have died for me. Does that not blow your mind? If you were the only person on the planet, he would have died for you. Jesus is just that amazing. Or how about, I'm going to show you a quote from a ex-drug addict that's all tatted up, just a really rough individual. And she was asked the question, why Christian? Why would you ever label yourself a Christian when there's so much baggage attached to that word, when there's been so much damage done in the name of Jesus? Why would you ever want to claim to follow Jesus? What a great question. And her reply was even better than the question. She says this, I am Christian because maybe I could have been Jesus' friend, because Jesus will accept anybody. (laughs) That is so good. In my own life, when I think about Jesus, I think about this loving presence that loves me so much, he refuses to let me settle for anything less than God's dreams for my life. And he prods me on with two words all the time, there's more. I hear that from Jesus a lot, there's more. There's more to me than you know. There's more to yourself than you know. There's more to this life, this world, than you know. You're going to love the discoveries you make. Don't stand still. There's more. He loves me too much to let me get stuck. Ah, so yeah, and I'm just scratching the surface. I could literally preach on this point all day, and I'm not going to because we're hungry, okay? But Jesus is amazing. Think about that again for the first time. He's so amazing that when demons saw him, they had to preach. (laughs) That should stun us, okay? Let me pray for us today, and we'll end our time with this. God, please help us to be people who are new wineskins, people who expand and grow and unfold and learn. 
So we're able to contain, Lord, your presence and all of the new life you have for us, Lord. Help us to be world-centric people, just like you are, Jesus. And Jesus, you're amazing. If our familiarity has blinded us to that truth and dulled our senses, my prayer is today you would awaken us to the wonder that is you so we can see you again for the first time, so our hearts can thrill to the reality of your presence. And maybe, just maybe, we can even burst into some sort of spontaneous praise or sermon or preaching, Lord. We don't want the demons to have all the fun. Thank you, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. God bless you. Have a glorious week. See you here next week as we continue our journey through the book of Mark. Remember, if you want to sign up for the Bible class, there's a sign-up sheet on the back counter. Blessings. Bye-bye.